0: It's great to be with you this morning in this very nice warm place as we're about to return from uh, Babylonian exile to uh, Estes Chapel in just a couple of weeks. We look forward, of course, very much to that. For this morning, though, in the parable of the pounds, Jesus tells a story to us that is embedded in a story about us which is really the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke in the large tells our story. Jesus directs this parable to us to challenge our story and to provide an alternative to the kind of people we are so that we can change the very direction of our lives. Our story is first our human story, and Luke's narrative probes our human life with great skill. Ernest Renan called Luke's Gospel, the most beautiful book ever written. And indeed, there was a tradition in the early church that Luke was a painter. Now the notion that Luke was a painter certainly has no foundation uh, historically, but it does express an unmistakable quality in Luke's Gospel, the quality of portraiture, the ability to present story with all the subtlety and depth of a great painting. We naturally think of stories being told, not painted. But Luke paints stories. And Luke paints a powerful picture with a brush stroke here and a dash of color there of a most distressing story, our human story. It is a story that begins with our despair in the face of the awful realities of death, disease, and disintegration. That is, a sense of chaos a sense that our fragile world is constantly about to fall apart. It's a story of our dreadful awareness that we stand helpless before these great powers of death, disease, and disintegration that threaten us and we know will sooner or later do us in. As someone has put it, I am a stranger afraid in a world I never made. And the psychological impact of this dull but persistent sense of doom and powerlessness is enormous. It begins, really, a downward spiral that leads next to a profound feeling of insecurity. And at this point, the devil becomes involved and uses a sense of insecurity to destroy us by urging us to deal with the insecurity of our lives by desperately asserting our self-will to use that self-will to take control of our own world. But the process is perverse, because in in the attempt to gain control of our world, we actually lose control of ourselves. We become controlled by control. We become slaves to domination. And so we attempt to control our environment by amassing of things. We attempt to control our relationships by grasping for status and authority, or conversely, by shaping our lives according to what we think will make us acceptable to the group. And we attempt to establish order by drawing rigid boundaries, separating those who are in from those who are out, attempting to protect ourselves from the unclean. That is our human story. Despair leading to insecurity, which in turn leads to self-assertive control. At least that's the way Luke describes it in the large in his gospel. But Jesus directs the, the parable, the pounds, not to us simply as humans, but also to us disciples. We have a disciple story too. Now to be sure, it was to the 70 disciples and the crowds who accompanied Jesus to Jerusalem that Jesus directed this parable. They were part of the historical ministry of Jesus, and as such, they played a unique role in the once-for-all action of God through Christ when God brought salvation to the world. They have a kind of historical particularity, a unique historical role. But as Luke portrays them, they are also examples, really representatives of all of us who, become, who will become disciples later. The best reading of the story of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem involves, through our use of imagination, our joining the group, and thinking and feeling along with the disciples, seeing through their eyes what Jesus does, and hearing what our Lord is saying to us. And if we see and hear in that way, we will recognize that in our disciples' story, Jesus is engaging in a grand project to deconstruct our human story and reconstructed into an entirely different story. If our human story begins with an oppressive sense of powerlessness before death, disease, and disintegration, our disciple story focuses upon Jesus who is completely victorious over death, disease, and disintegration. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He speaks calmness into the chaos of our lives. We still experience death and disease, of course, but Jesus has defanged these beasts for us. That's why Paul could cry out, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now, you would think that once the beginning of the downward spiral has been removed by the powerful healing and resurrecting work of Christ that all the insecurity and desire to control that followed from it would simply crumble away and we would experience automatically the healthy readjustment of our lives. But our insecurities and desire to control are so ingrained in us, they are so comfortable to us, that even when Jesus takes away the dread of death, disease, and disintegration, our attempts to experience security through our own self-assertion And the patterns of control continue. For we disciples still seek security through the control of our environment by wealth. So that Jesus must warn us disciples to beware of all covetousness and must alert us disciples that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We disciples still express our insecurity through our attempt to control our relationships by status so that we argue with one another about who is the greatest. And like the kings of the Gentiles, we want to exercise lordship over others. And we disciples still seek security through the erection of rigid and self-protecting boundaries so that we, when we encounter others who minister faithfully in Jesus' name but who happen not to belong to our group, we demean them and attempt to shut them down. And when Jesus discloses that he has a destiny that leads him to Jerusalem, where he will repudiate all self-assertive attempts at control as he submits to suffering and death, we, like those first disciples, often don't fully understand what he means. We, like them, are inclined to think of the very salvation that Christ brings as the empowerment to control, rather than the relinquishing of control. Indeed, this is exactly where the disciples are when Jesus speaks this parable to them. Jesus has repeatedly foretold his suffering and death at Jerusalem. But, Luke tells us, they understood none of these things. This saying was hid from them, and they did not grasp what he said. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately upon his arrival in Jerusalem. Now, this is not just a confusion about when the kingdom will come. It is also a confusion about what kind of kingdom it will be. For the notion that the kingdom would appear immediately upon Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem means that it will not involve the motto of suffering and death, the motto of self-denial, the motto of giving up control, but rather the alternative model the model the disciples have been toying with all along, the model of saving life rather than losing it, of gaining the whole world through our own efforts of control. Really, people like this are inclined to think that the kingdom of God means power finally to exercise our control effectively. Now we can bid fire to come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans who oppose us, as James and John wanted to do. Only this time, there will be ashes. Now we can effectively exercise our control over those who stand against us by drawing a sword and cutting off ears, confident that as we do so, God will take up our cause and slay our enemies. This really is the image of the kingdom the disciples are entertaining. And it is right into the face of that conception that Jesus gives another vision a radical alternative. Because in the parable of the kingdom, of the parable of the parables, the coming kingdom does not appear immediately, but only after a long while. In the meantime, we disciples do not receive control, but a command and a task. And it is a task that contravenes all search for security and every quest for control, because the thing that characterizes this command, this task, is risk. Jesus, who is of course the nobleman in this parable, gives to each of his 10 servants one, well, the RSV and the NRSV translate this as pound. This is a vestige of, of old English or British translations. Does not have to do with giving them a British pound, to be sure but a mina, which is hard to estimate how much this would be in modern day, but let's say around $6,000 or so, not a lot of money. But anyway, gives to each of his servants one mina, certainly representing the call to discipleship. That's basically what the pound, the mina represents, the call to discipleship, and commands that they do business with this until I come. Or again, in the language of the RSV, trade with this till I come. That is, live into our discipleship in such a way that its promise and potential will be fully realized. That I take to be, in a nutshell, the meaning of that business trade till I come. To live into our discipleship in such a way that its promise and potential will be fully realized. In this whole period between Jesus' ascension, his going to receive his kingdom, and his return to earth in glory, our task is to take our call to discipleship in hand and develop our discipleship in the fullest possible way. And that process of developing our discipleship in the fullest possible way is a daring one. It is filled with risk. Because Jesus insists that we invest it with the bankers and return it to him with multiple earnings. But high-yield investments are always risky. That is why the third servant hid it away. He did the safe thing. Like it or not, in our human story, and sometimes, too, in our disciple story, We come close to being the third servant. We also play it safe, maintain our control over this gift of discipleship that Jesus has given into our hands, coddle it in our bandanas, so as not to take any chances. But discipleship is not safe. It means audaciously relinquishing control, bravely taking risk. It involves banking our whole life on Jesus' insistence that we can have the only true security by giving up our own control and following him to Jerusalem where suffering and death await. All of our old, comfortable securities are threatened. From one perspective, Karl Barth was right when he said, faith is not a standing, but a being suspended and hanging without ground under our feet. And that is risky and threatening. Discipleship involves a threat to our sense of well-being insofar as our security is tied to our status or position because trade till I come means that the greatest of you must become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And we in ministry must be especially careful here. For as I once heard Elizabeth Ochtemeier say, There is something terribly demonic about being a leader in the church. Very interesting that you put it that way. Pretty startling. There is something terribly demonic about being a leader in the church, she says, to see ourselves as professional holy men and women with built-in authority and status. That position can end up as nothing but an ego trip in which almost unbelievably, we use the terrible need of those who turn to us for our own self-gratification. Moreover, it is possible even to use humility in ministry as a cover for maintaining authority and status. As for example, when we ministers attempt to protect ourselves and preserve our standing by submitting to the will of powerful persons in the church when they wish to do that which will have the effect of destroying the church or of hindering the mission of of destroying other persons, or of hindering the mission of the church. It is easier, less threatening, for us to appear deferential and cave in, rather than to fight, and to put our own status in standing on the line. On those few occasions, when I, with God's help, and certainly with God's help, stood alone in opposing a course of action and a point of view that I thought was wrong, and risk my popularity, acceptance, and sometimes even my position. Invariably, certain people would come to me afterwards and practically, in a whisper, tell me that they agreed with me and that they were glad that someone had spoken up. I must confess to you, I have not always avoided the temptation to respond by saying, well, that's just fine. But why on earth didn't you say so in there? Discipleship involves also a threat to our sense of well-being insofar as our security is tied to the protection of the tribe and erects walls of separation between ourselves and those who are different, repulsive, or threatening. Because trade till I come means to touch lepers and to eat with tax collectors and sinners. I still remember, with pain, being harshly criticized by friends in my Free Methodist youth group when I was a teenager, when I dared to associate with a group of high school classmates who were, well, to put it bluntly, grungy drug users. Put it in the language of the time, I hung out with the heads. You probably wouldn't believe that about me, but I really did. You know, there are many things uh, that I did as an adolescent of which I'm ashamed and would not even want to mention them here in this place. But embracing in friendship those who were shunned by the respectable is something I do not regret. Discipleship also involves a threat to our sense of well-being insofar as we tie our security to our reputation and even to our physical safety. Trade till I come means that we will be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. A witness that necessarily means adopting a culturally threatening proclamation and a countercultural countercultural lifestyle, thus inviting marginalization, derision, and attack. In every culture where Christian discipleship is really lived out, there are significant numbers who hate Christ and those who follow him in the cruciform life. And this is not new. It has been so from the beginning. We can see what the Greeks thought of the cross of Christ in an archaeological remain found some years ago in the barrack room of the Praetorian Guard in Rome, where there was a caricature of the crucifixion. There was a cross with a man hanging on it with the head of an ass, and a humble soldier kneeling before it with the legend that read underneath it, uh, Alexandris worships his God. And the same is true today, isn't it? Joe Scarborough of MSNBC, hardly a right-wing zealot, wrote something that immediately resonates. said, American media companies are raking in millions of dollars from movies, books, and TV series that attack Christians and depict Jesus as a fraud. I just tell you, if there wasn't a market for it, they wouldn't produce it. In our setting, too, costly, pain-producing witness. And speaking of witness, there is no doubt that trade to ICOM come involves global evangelism. And it certainly includes the demand that we work hard in our evangelistic efforts. Indeed, the language of the parable might suggest that reward is based upon success in ministry. The first servant began with one mina. And that one developed into ten more, and for that he was rewarded. But it is not numerical results of evangelistic witness that is a basis for this man's reward. It is his faithfulness. You have been faithful, Jesus said, in a very little. Therefore, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now, numerical growth is wonderful, And it is true that one of the major problems with our churches is a maintenance orientation that is satisfied simply to uh, keep up the mechanisms and programs of the church, keep them going for the sake of those who are inside. And of course, that kind of maintenance ministry is a form of denying risk and seeking security. We grant all that. But in the book of Acts, which is really commentary on this passage, it is always the Lord who gives growth to the church. That is his work. Although our efforts are necessary, it is not ultimately our work that produces healthy growth. And according to Acts, that which is responsible more than anything else for the Lord giving growth to his church is a church's suffering and persecution. It is the faithfulness of the church to its Lord and to his gospel that is the key to church growth. But Acts also tells us that sometimes faithful witness will not result in evangelistic success or growth. Sometimes faithful witness will result in 3,000 souls added in one day, as was a happy consequence of Peter's Pentecost sermon in chapter 2 at the beginning of the Jerusalem period. But Stephen... In chapter 7, at the end of the Jerusalem period was every bit as faithful as was Peter and his witness was just as powerful but the result was no conversions, not one. And yet, heaven was opened to Stephen and as he was about to die he said, Behold, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Let me tell you truly, there are many pastors and other Christians who are placing their confidence in their success, especially numerical success. We need to let go of that false security and recognize that faithfulness to the realities of the kingdom, no matter what the numerical outcome, is a one necessary thing. But there is risk here, not only that our comfortable securities are threatened, but that our discipleship, in fact, our salvation itself, is threatened by this command, trade till I come. In the first century Palestinian world, as today, one could not trade in such a way as to realize a 1,000 percent return. And that's what you have with the first servant, a 1,000 percent return. You could not trade in such a way as to realize such a return without assuming a great deal of risk. Risk that the initial investment could be lost. The point is clear. The cost of discipleship is so enormous. The threats to our comfortable securities are so severe that some of us, as we face the cost, will conclude that we don't have the wherewithal to follow through. This risk-taking may reveal that our discipleship is just a hollow shell. It really doesn't have the substance we thought it did. We will be like the man who desired to build a tower without first counting the cost, whether he had enough to complete it, And after he laid the foundation, he had to call it quits. Or the king who intended to meet another king in battle, but did not have adequate troops at his command, and having started the battle, had to pull back. It is always possible that in the face of the cost, we who initially put our hand to the plow will look back and find that we were not fit for the kingdom of God. All of that is possible. But it is not necessary. For we have the help of our Lord himself, who sees in us, as he saw in Peter, that Satan demands to have us, that he might sift us like wheat. But he gives the same promise to us as he gave to Simon. I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. The Lord himself, the Lord of heaven and earth, prays for us, that our faith may not fail. This incidentally is the New Testament doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But even if we did not have that promise, we would have no choice but to take the risk. This is where the third servant was wrong. He thought he could maintain his discipleship and his salvation simply by coddling it in his in his bandana. A discipleship, though, that refuses to crucify all the securities that we hold dear turns out to be meaningless. And this man, who in his caution refused to take risks and did everything he could to maintain what he had, in the very process lost all that he had. This course of action, or really inaction, might seem prudent, but such caution is reckless. In fact, there is such a thing as... A recklessness of caution. Risk in itself, of course, is not necessarily good. Some people take great risk for very unworthy things, and they pay an awful price. As the citizens in our parable, who did not want this noble man to rule over them and sent an embassy to derail his kingdom and consequently faced a horrible death, they represent those who boldly and audaciously fight against the rule of God in Jesus Christ. We do not want this man to rule over us there is a recklessness of recklessness. People acting in daring ways for very foolish ideas. But there is also a recklessness of caution. And the word of our Lord to us is to beware of the recklessness of caution. But in the end, all of this is not about us. What we do in risk becomes part of the story of God and his love for the world. It has divine global consequences. In the present time, between Christ's ascension and his return, this period of his absence from the earth, Christ has given the redemption of the world into our hands, into the hands of his servants, you and me. It all depends on whether we will trade until I come, whether we will take the risks of discipleship or with fear hold on tightly to our comfortable securities. The world cries out for an alternative to the dismal insecurity of self-referenced grasping control. It may not seem so, but it's true. The world cries out for an alternative to that. And the only real sustainable alternative that has ever been offered to the world in its long history is audacious, risk-taking Christian discipleship. God has risked everything on our risking everything. Parables often have surprises. This one does. It's surprising that our Lord compares himself to this nobleman who was actually anything but noble, who was, in fact, a greedy, money-grabbing cheat. That is the way the third servant describes him to his face. And the man doesn't deny it. Now, our Lord is not a cheat, of course, but he is greedy. He demands that we pull out all the stops and throwing caution to the wind, let him have it all. Augustine, as a matter of fact, refers to him, and this is Augustine's language, refers to Christ as mercifully greedy. For, Augustine goes ahead to say, Christ is greedy for our salvation and the salvation of the world. Increasingly, I think we make a mistake in our evangelism, in our evangelistic preaching, when we pull back from declaring to people just how radical and therefore how filled with risk it is to embark upon discipleship. You know, in Luke's gospel, Jesus repeatedly warns people about the dangers and risks that will attend discipleship. I often remind my, my students of, uh, of a statement that I heard Elizabeth Ockenmeyer make on more than one occasion, And that is that Jesus, in in Luke's gospel, has a very odd method of evangelism. He goes around telling people why they shouldn't become disciples, trying to argue them away from discipleship, telling them just how much it will cost and how they they need to be very careful before they engage in such a thing. That's, That's characteristic of Luke's gospel. But it is Luke's gospel that records that Jesus had multitudes of disciples. There were multitudes who accepted Jesus' call to discipleship precisely in the face of his warning about the risks. I wonder if we would not have more people coming to faith in Christ if we presented discipleship in all of its radical audacity. I suspect that many people refuse our evangelistic pleas because of the whole hum effect. We have sometimes so watered it down That decision for Christ seems insignificant, and discipleship appears meaningless and boring. Why bother? Both those to whom we proclaim the gospel and we ourselves need to recognize that there is no safe place in the world, not in your universe or in mine. Human existence is full of risks. The question we have to decide is whether the risks we take are worthy of us, humans created by God. Whether these risks that we take will give us real purpose in our lives. Whether these risks that we take will result in our realizing, precisely through the right kind of struggles and danger, our full potential as men and women. While Martin Luther was risking life and limb and everything he owed dear for the sake of the gospel in the face of the greatest religious power structure that the world has ever seen, on one occasion, a papal envoy visited him and said, You know, everyone is going to abandon you. And when you are alone, where will you be then? Luther replied, Then as now, In the hands of God. Now that can be pious slap trap, pious sloganeering, but there was a life behind it. This is a Luther who penned the powerful words we sang earlier, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abides still. His kingdom, this is the only thing in the end that really matters, His kingdom is forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.